Welcome to Technotopia, the podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Andrew Zimmer. He's a chef and traveler. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter. Typewriter is your on-demand editor, and their amazing team of writers will make your book chapter, blog post, or email shine. Typewriter editors come from places like TechCrunch, Gizmodo, and the New York Times, and they offer low bulk rates for longer work. Check it out at typewriter.plus. That's typewriter.plus. Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Andrew Zimmer, and he's a chef and traveler, uh, one of my favorite TV personalities. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks. Great to be here. <laughs> yeah, this is super. So you fly around the world and, and look at weird food, um, and this is a podcast about the future. What is the future of food? Well, the, the I'm very bullish on it. Okay. Um, I know a lot of other people are not. Um, I believe that we are in the middle of a 30 to 40 year social justice movement sufficient to recover from the damage that we put our food system and our ecosystem in over the last 50, 60 years. Okay. Because we're in the middle of it. It's scary to people. You can't see the can't see where you're going. It's like being in a boat in the middle of the ocean. You can't see where you're going. You can't see where you came from. So it's scary to people. Um, I do believe in the in the power of humanity uh, to tackle those problems head on. And I think right now we're doing a lot of arguing about it. That's uh, that's very scary to me, very depressing to me. Uh, but I do think we'll come out on the other end. I, I think pretty darn good with it. Okay, so what what do you think are some of the drivers of this of this movement? Is it the local food stuff, the local vor? Uh, is it is it new technologies? Um, what are you say it's you say it's actually a social justice issue as well? Uh, who are some of the folks who are who you've seen who are actually uh, are fighting this good fight? Well, you asked a lot of you asked a lot of questions there. I sure. think that I think actually the driving force of this is uh, human experience. Uh, three times a day meets entertainment. Um, the reason that we're in the greatest uh, romantic period uh, in the history of uh, the world, there's never been a culture as obsessed with food mm -hmm. as Americans are now. Um, we, we have, because we participate three times a day in this and because we've now fetishized food if you notice the the birth of the Food Network, just that date, 26 years ago or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, 26 and a half maybe by this point, um, sort of dovetails with where the food, food movement took over from the, uh, the eco movement. It doesn't mean okay. the eco movement went away. It's just that food was an easier way for people to think about it. Okay. And – when people are protesting over the watershed, the food shed, soil erosion, uh, stuff like that, it really didn't get any traction until folks started to talk about it in terms of commercial feedlot production being the largest methane producer uh, in the United States. Um, you know, pesticide and chemical runoff from giant agri farms. You, you see what I'm saying? Of when, it got, when it got put into the context of food, 
and there was more food media, people became more activated by it. So I, I think that's probably been the biggest driver. Um, and it, you know, just to sort of bring it forward for those that are younger and weren't around at, at that time, now you have um, people like myself uh, or any one of a number of dozens of people who have a big platform who are into these issues saying, hey, don't buy fish from anyone who can't tell you uh, where the fish was from, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think it's really funny that people are quoting Michael Pollan without knowing that it's a <laughs> Michael Pollan quote, uh, which I think is fantastic. I mean, he has several, I shouldn't pin him to just one, but you know, um, don't eat anything that your grandparents wouldn't recognize as food. Mm -hmm. I hear that all the time from people. I say, Oh wow, where'd you hear that? They're like, I don't know. <laughs> it's true. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's really good advice. Michael Pollan said that. Yeah. Poor um, Michael Pollan. So it's, it's a, it's a, it, you know, this intersection of, uh, food worship, food celebrity, uh, the, 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 a full generation growing up inside the container ship that is the food media. And I sort of peg that to the birth of food network 26 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, you know, the fact that millennials and whatever we're calling, do we have a name for the next generation after them yet? Uh, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh are they Generation Z? I keep forgetting. I guess they uh, might be Generation Z. There's some kind of there's some kind of like new agey term for them as well, but yeah. I forget what it is right so, now. You know, millennials and Gen Z. You know that you know health, wellness, uh, the the biosphere called planet Earth, transparency. These are all things that uh, they believe are very important totems for themselves. So it intersects with this food movement very neatly. Um, you know. It, it's you know been a hot button in the in the news over the last couple of weeks about how much our government is doing to undo the work that people of my generation were doing in the '60s and '70s. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, creating you know, Nixon used to be a dirty word. You know, it was in his administration that the EPA was founded. Um, you know, he was Nixon was a mess, but you know, he he did a he did a couple of things that were pretty sensible. Um, we. <laughs> We finally are at a place right now where, you know, the the business as usual. Oh, yeah, that, you know, everyone cares about our rivers and streams, don't they? Well, not the current administration. Mm -hmm. So it, people are now discovering kind of in a panic that there's whole groups of people, whole communities of people that they can turn to organizations that in some cases are 30, 40 years old. Um, that are actually leading the charge for this stuff. So whether it's whether it's clean water, whether it's uh, food shed preservation, uh, whether it's aquaculture, whether it's food insecurity or food waste, mm -hmm. and those are probably the the big five. I mean, I'm sure someone will write in or call in and say, you know, no, it's, you know, these are the big five, but mm -hmm. generally speaking, those big five concerns, those movements, you know, add clean air would be one of them. So there's six. Um, we, we have really, really, really smart people who are fighting this fight. And I don't think the bad guys are going to win. That's fascinating. So food, food culture has become sort of a Trojan horse for, uh, eco-consciousness. 
Ab- absolutely. I mean, much in the same way, I'll give you a great parallel for any political geeks out there, much in the same way that I'm not sure how much talk we can have about immigration uh, these days. There seems to be too much arguing and fighting over it. Mm-hmm. But immigration is an integral part of the farm bill. And the farm bill comes up for another vote in two years. Um, you know, uh, these are fascinating, fascinating times that we live in. And I think educating ourselves about them is really, really smart. But you talk about Trojan horses. I think there's I think there's lots of them uh, em, embedded out there. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens when the trap door opens and uh, the Athenians come uh, come <laughs> racing out with their swords and shields. What what happens in twenty years? What is the what does the food landscape uh, look like? Do we go to Chipotle and McDonald's? Does it look like Williamsburg? Um, what kind of restaurants are we looking at? This this is a fascinating. It's it's interesting the the examples that you used. I, I just attended a uh, a charrette at the Boston uh, Museum of Science on this very issue. What does the food plate look like in twenty years? And I gave the uh, the talk at the, uh, the keynote address, uh, the, the first morning. Um, and I challenged everyone that we really don't know what it looks like right now because too many of these issues are up in the air. We even have an extremely huge argument within the movement around the nature, uh, around the nature of food waste and, and hunger. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it's projected that we're going to add another 2 billion people over the next 50 years to our planet, right? So I don't know where we're at in 20 years, but, you know, in 50 years, we're going to have another 2 billion people living here, 2.5 billion people mm-hmm. living here. Um, how do we feed them? We know that 25% of Americans, let's just talk about our country, are food insecure. They don't know where their next three meals that, that day are coming from. Um, but at the same time, we waste 40% of our food. Uh, mostly before it gets to the consumer. Although a huge amount, I mean, just think about our own homes, right? That we, sure. we just don't, we don't do a very good job of. Um, what is fascinating to me is that the world of activism is evenly divided between folks who say, we have to start, you know, farming on the moon. We have to start giant aquaculture projects to, feed everyone. Uh, we all have to start eating Soylent, mm-hmm. which is meal replacement that is not based around pleasure. It's just a simple, essentially tasteless shake. Um, and uh, then you have people on the flip side uh, who say, no, if we just reduce our uh, reliance on meat and take away the subsidies to the giant agri farms for corn and soybeans and actually give the subsidies to people to farm vegetables and, uh, you know, uh, legumes and fruits, et cetera. Um, and we start eating alternative proteins that will solve the problem. And I, I, I challenged everybody, um, that much like, um, when, uh, and any parent will, will recognize this advice. You, you go to the doctor and you say, something's wrong with my child. Mm-hmm. And you're convinced it's uh, the medicine that he's taking for his cold. And the doctor says, what's going on in the home? And you tell him. And they're like, what's going on at school? And you tell him. And he's like, what's going on with his friends? And you tell him. The doctor says, you know, 
I'm sure the medicine is part of it, but the stress with his friends and the exams coming up and, uh, you know, mom just is getting ready to leave on a, on a big business trip or maybe to her mother's and father's cause a relative passed away. It's usually all four or five of those things to varying percentages, um, that are the easiest answer to the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Occam's razor, I think, doesn't sure. that state that, you know, the most obvious answer. So to me, what I presented to the group was I can't tell you what the percentages are, but the answer is going to be everything. We have to nibble away at this uh, problem with every tool that's in our kit, because as a country, we can't decide on anything, but we can start to fight in food security issues by making sure that eating in America is not a class privilege, that it's a right. Mm -hmm. We can start to fight soil erosion and runoff by creating borderlands around all our rivers and streams and passing laws that prevent giant agri-farms from building right up to the edge of them. We can start subsidizing groups like greenwave.org, the people who have done the most incredible and advanced studies that I know of uh, on practical, underscore the word practical, uh, aquaculture, uh, where they actually build food columns in the ocean, uh, kelp on the top, bags of mussels Mm -hmm. and clams at the bottom, cages with crabs and shrimp all the way at the very bottom of that Mm -hmm. along with scallops. You get the idea. Sure. Um, I believe the solution uh, to our problem is not to all decide on what the best way to approach this is, but to engage all the tools in our arsenal, mostly because the problem is so big. When you have a really, really, really big problem, you need to bring a lot of weapons to bear. And I think that's that's the time that we're at here. I do think consumer education is a big part of that. I think people need to learn how to cook more so they can provide for themselves. Um, it allows them to spend more family time together. It allows them to touch their food and develop a deeper respect for it. And they know where, then they'll know where their food comes from and how it's produced. Um, I think at home you can make healthier food for yourself than you can by going, uh, to a fast fooder of any type. Um, if it were up to me, uh, some of the fast food franchises, uh, some of the, uh, you know, candy makers and, you know, sugar pushers, um, are, are, are as dangerous as drug dealers in our schools. I I can't for the life of me understand how in, uh, as enlightened a culture as ours, Mm -hmm. um, it, we think that giving kids, uh, poisonous chemicals, if you and I invented sugar today, if it didn't exist, (laughs) we tried to get it past the FDA, it would be it would be thrown out after the first child testing. I mean, sure. can you imagine? You know, it oh, it rots their teeth. It elevates their blood <laughs> pressure. It's, I mean, it's it's a, sugar is a refined about refined sugar. Sure, sure, is a poison. Um, it's also extremely addictive. Um, so, I mean, if I could make wave a magic wand to solve one food problem, it would be uh, just take away sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think I do think it's going to require a whole, you know, all 52 cards in our deck are going to have to be played um, to start to move the needle on this. Do you think we can do that? Do you think 20 years from now there's a there's a sugar moratorium just as there's pretty much a tobacco moratorium and uh, and I guess even alcohol could, I should, be, could be in there. Look at I, I will tell I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, 
when I when I was young, uh, seat belts. You, well, the front seat of a car was a bench. Mm-hmm. There were a couple sports cars had bucket seats, but the but the front seat of the car was a bench, um, and it had seat belts that were just waist restrainers, um, and those really weren't even that helpful because the car was designed in such a way that even with the seatbelt on, there were going to be problems. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of sharp stuff. Yep. Um, but when we bought a new car in 1967, I'll never forget it. Uh, my father tucked the seatbelts into the place where the back of the seat and the seat, the bottom of the seat met. Right. Sure. You didn't want to be um, bothered. Out of sight, out of mind. Who needed one? Um, Today, uh, 50 years later, um, if I get into the car, I basically have to put my seatbelt on before I get into the car to satisfy my 12-year-old. <laughs> um, I, I asked my son the other day, because I, I talk about this a lot you know, from podiums around the world. I said, how, how is it that, uh, that uh, I said, hey, do you think smoking, what do you think about smoking? Noah, you know, with cigarettes. And he mm-hmm. just, he went on a rampage about how uncool it was. I said, what about kids at school and stuff like that? Um, smoking, you know, I started to look into the numbers, you know, new smokers have decreased. I mean, you know, everything positive, all the numbers are trending positively over mm-hmm. smoking, even the, the, uh, financial position of the farmers, um, who turned to aquaculture and other crops, um, uh, in the Carolinas, in Virginia, uh, with the uh, deregulation of the tobacco uh, farms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing how much positive strides we've made. We even have a warning label on the cigarettes that says that this stuff will kill you. So it's really no longer uh, – cigarettes are no longer cool and it's no longer working. Um, that took 50 years. So you know if the – Food network generation, if you if you really take an honest look at this, we're halfway through what might be as long as a 40 or 50 year long uh, revolution to turn this thing around. But I think uh, I mean, look what you know, we we're talking about education and would would in 20 years sugar be gone? Um, margarine is not gone from our uh shelves at the supermarket. It's still for sale. However, there was a time about 20 years ago when everyone, all the scientists came out and said, Hey, guess what? Butter's bad for you. Margarine is the answer. And butter shrunk to this little tiny square footage in our supermarkets. And then the real science came out uh, very quickly afterwards and said, there is nothing more dangerous and worse for you than margarine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is loaded with the, you know, the most evil of, of things, trans fats, right? Um, this is essentially a mixture. Uh, margarine is, is, you know, an oil based butter substitute. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, margarine is now this tiny little shrunk space and, you know, like sugar, it's terrible for you. It's probably still going to be there. Uh, but I think everybody now knows the wholesomeness uh, of butter. If your grandparents wouldn't recognize it, don't eat it. <laughs> and and I think there's an entire generation. My kid and my my wife and I never said a word to him. 
but my kid doesn't eat Twinkies or other things like that Mm -hmm. because he knows how awful they are for you. And the other day he said to me, uh, you know, I still haven't had a Twinkie uh, since whenever he uh, we let him try one. A friend of his had some and wanted to give him one. He said, can I try it? He just thought it was bad. And the mm-hmm. reason he thought it was bad is because he had eaten wholesome versions of the same thing. There's nothing wrong with cake and whipped cream. Yeah, and I'm sure he has access to good cake and whipped cream in your presence, obviously. Well, I mean, you know, we, we actually treat dessert differently. You know, we didn't want to raise a kid that was a sugar addict or a dessert freak. So uh, we don't serve dessert in our house. Mm-hmm. So his perception of it is that it's a privilege that sometimes you get a sweet treat. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's, I I think parents, I mean, parents, you know, it's the hardest job in the world raising a kid. Children do not come with instruction manuals. However, the most mistakes in forming children's lives comes from ill-equipped parents. Uh And I don't think that's any surprise uh, that's out there. Um, If, you know, if you're a new mom or dad, don't serve dessert in your house. Just make it a non-issue. Your kid grows up without dessert and you and comes home one day when he's four or five years old and says, you know, what the heck? I don't <laughs> at Bobby's house and they have dessert. They said, right, that's what they do over there for us. Dessert is a treat. It's not a it's you don't have dessert after breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And the kids will go, Oh, okay. Because they're used to not having it. If you serve your kid fresh vegetables, if you serve your kid wholesome food, the problem with doing that and the reason why asking parents to do that all the time is so hard is because we're time poor in America um, and you know time poverty is often not talked about. And sadly, uh, and this is talked about, eating well in America is a class issue. That to me is not an embarrassment. That's not a. That's not shameful to me. That's criminal. Mm-hmm. Everyone in America should be entitled to eat wholesome, good food. This is the greatest culture, the most richest economy, the most amazing country in the history of the world, and we can't feed every American wholesome, good food. That's criminal. All right. That's uh, this has been this has been a wide ranging t- uh, group of topics, but this is all this is all amazing stuff. I love the I love the parenting advice in a in a future podcast, which is really which is helpful for me. We have three kids down there who, who want desserts all the time. Oh yeah, you know what you know what, <laughs> you know what's good is you use we use news videos on our on our child. Okay. Um, grandma and Grandpa loved taking Noah to McDonald's until we showed him that I think it was Kansas City, that reporter that went to McDonald's, took some swabs and like rubbed down a bunch of different toys in the play area and stuff like that. And then went then took it to, you know, some mm-hmm. uh, you know, chemist lab and came back and said, here's the bacteria that's on this thing. We showed that to our kid and that was it. Done. Didn't never want to go back to a McDonald's again. I, I used to work at Burger King when I was, I guess, sixteen, and we we put um we put some eggs into the walk-in, and then the next morning when I came back, there were flies, mixed eggs. There were flies in the container with saran wrap over it. So, however that happened, this ambiogenesis or whatever happened, uh, it was it was pretty magical. But we, uh, I, I learned pretty quickly not to eat it at Burger King. Well, I can. So that's why that's why they're able to sell the stuff so cheaply. Mm-hmm. Everybody asked me, 
um, especially when I'm at the fancy supermarket. They say, how come you don't shop, you know, because I'm always talking to people about value. I said, how come you don't shop the big box supermarket? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not talking about Walmart uh, here um, because those places like Walmart are very safe places to shop because they are able to give you discounts because of the huge bulk that they can. Sure. They're the largest purchaser of everything. So they can dictate price, but every city has their local chain. That's just local to that city or that part of the state of a really deeply discounted supermarket. And the reason that the eggs are twice as expensive at the market I shop at as the other one is that the, the other one gets them when they're older and they've been sitting around. Mm-hmm. And the egg farms rush the stuff out as quickly as they can to the premium pain uh, supermarkets. And the other ones are getting older stuff. And that's just the way it is with everything. I'd rather buy stuff that I know is fresh that lasts longer in my refrigerator. It's a fascinating thing. So these fast food chains are getting the most tainted food possible. How do you think it's you know, I always ask people, it's like, why do you think you can get breakfast plus coffee? For <laughs> I mean, you know, what are you kidding me? All right, Andrew, this has been, uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, I'm going to watch you this, this season uh, coming up. And thank you for joining us on Technotopia. This is amazing. Every Tuesday night, there's new episodes of one of my shows on Travel Channel. And people, for all information about me, can go to andrewzimmer.com. All right, we'll see Bye-bye. you guys next week.